Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the truth of the word of God that we can rely on and run to in a world that seems to be coming apart at the seams. Help us to always keep that in mind. Guide us with your spirit. Bless our time here together today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today I had another title selected, and I called an audible early this morning and decided to, as I was listening to some other, I I listened to other prophecy updates. I listened to a lot of audio and video clips, uh, even some of the ones that people send me, but certainly not the several hundred that I get sent each week. But the... The common theme is that, uh, and we had talked a couple weeks ago about the Great Reset. That was what the World Economic Forum had termed what they, they're going to be doing at Davos in January 2021. They're going to be talking about the Great Reset, that uh, the world is obviously in a mess, and so we're going to have to reset everything. But my conclusion is, as I watch and listen and read that it's really not a great reset that we're coming up on it or that we're looking forward to. We're in the midst of a great unraveling because it does seem like everything is coming apart at the seams. It is a very troubling. So I'm going to try to organize. I tried to organize this today. And at one point I just sort of threw up my hands and said, you know, um, listen and try to make sense of it because there's so much going on that when you start looking at one thing, um, every now and then I'll look at my browser and I'll have, you know, I start with about eight tabs open on my browser. And pretty soon every now and then I have like 45. It doesn't doesn't take long to get there. So I got to shut it down and, and sort of start over because there's a lot as you, as you probably have realized, there is a lot happening in this world. It is truly the time of convergence. As we look at these events that are related to Bible prophecy that the scripture has talked about. I was talking to some friends this week uh, on a conference call, other teachers and leaders, and the conclusion was this this really seems different this time in terms of Bible prophecy and where we are because of all the different things that are happening all at the same time. We talked for years about the disrupted world. Now, one of the areas, so I'm going to start off with some church Bible-related stuff. It's related to what's going on in the culture. And this whole Black Lives Matter movement and... This, the tearing down of monuments, the destruction of monuments, and they don't care, they don't care who it is. This, is. this is the way communists and Marxists think and leftists think. They want to tear down the whole system. I saw an interview with somebody associated with Black Lives Matters, and he said, we're going to burn down the whole system. Now that we might, that, and that might mean literally. And so when he says it might mean literally, I take him to mean that they literally want to do this. Because everything they do seems to be pointing to that. But it's also affected people who claim to be Christian and evangelical. Um, 
Sean King uh, is associated with Black Lives Matter, and he posted this this week. Yes, I think the statues of the white European they claim is Jesus should also come down. They are a form of white supremacy, always have been. In the Bible, when the family of Jesus wanted to hide and blend in, guess where they went? Egypt, not Denmark. Tear them down. Uh, now, first of all, point of historical fact, Denmark did not exist at the time of the birth of Christ. And anyone with a passing knowledge of the Bible would know that. But did you know that Sean King was actually the founding pastor of a church called um, Courageous Church in Atlanta? He left after a couple years. And sometimes I wonder, I look at some of these young pastors and what they're doing, and other pastors and what they're doing with regard to just wholesale adoption of this Black Lives Matters stuff and people bending the knee to it and not look, taking the time to even look at what they say, that they want to tear down the family, they want to tear down society, they want to tear down institutions, they want to get rid of uh, patriarchal family relationships, they want to everything transgender, whatever sexual orientation someone might have, that's going to be reign over the family. And they even say something like, it takes a village. So I often wonder when these guys who call themselves pastors like Sean King, that when they write their bio, maybe they should change that I was the founding pastor of such and such a church to I was the founding predator. Because that's really what they are. They pander to this. And they want to tear down the memorials. So I... Um, had started preparing this, and then I saw somebody else did sort of an update, a prophecy update, and they talked about this as well. And then I, I saw her listen to some people on the way to church this morning, and a couple of them were talking about it. So I think this is a good sign that this is a common theme that should be done, because memorials and monuments in Scripture, they are sometimes negative, but they are often positive. God has set these for remembrances of people. And when you go to Israel, and I would encourage you to do that if and when the United States is ever allowed by any other country to come visit them, uh, that seems to be a problem. In fact, we don't even have the ability, um, they don't even want, some states don't want people from other states. I think New York, Connecticut, and New Jersey said, hey, we don't want you people from Florida and Texas and other places, unless you go into 14-day quarantine. And other countries, they have these 14-day quarantines if they let you in. And if you have a two-week vacation, not very attractive for traveling. So air travel is collapsing. I see the Qantas, uh, well, the, the South American and Central American airlines are on the verge of collapse. Qantas has uh, laid off, I think, the Australian airline has laid off 6,000 employees and have said that they're not really going to get back into international travel uh, until sometime in 2021. Talked to somebody else this week whose husband works at a, a significant company and another, I won't mention the state or the company or the industry that they're in, but her husband was in the office the other day cleaning out his desk. And my immediate reaction was, oh, is he retiring? And no, no. They just told him, don't come back until sometime. We'll tell you sometime that you can come back, and it will be sometime in 2021. 
And that was in a major metropolitan area in the United States of America. And this is happening everywhere. I still, I go to my office uh, in the Huntington Center, downtown Columbus, and there's, this, this week there were 20 cars on the level of the parking garage where I parked. That's about five, five more than the most that I've seen in the last three months. And that, this is one of the biggest office buildings in Columbus, and there's just nobody around. It's very disconcerting. But back to this Black Lives Matter thing, and they want to tear down everything. Let me give you a few biblical examples, two of them, that show that God does endorse these monuments. These monuments, whether they are monuments to saintly-type people or to people who have problems and issues, and I would probably stipulate that every human being has flaws. But the monuments serve a teaching moment, and they want to destroy it all because they want to rewrite history. But how does the Bible treat that? In Matthew chapter 5, John came preaching in the wilderness. In those days, John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, in those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locust and wild honey. Is that, does that qualify as a keto diet? <laughs> I don't know. If it does. <laughs> then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around about Jordan. They were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, building on the theme I started with, you predators, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. And then this verse, and think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Now, I personally am of the view, having studied this and looked at this a little bit, that these stones were not just stones laying around. And in the region where John was preaching, John the Baptist was preaching, was the area where Israel had crossed the Jordan when they were coming into the Holy Land after leaving uh, Egypt and then spending 40 year, years wandering in the wilderness. As they came into the Holy Land, they came into across uh, the Jordan near Jericho. And Joshua gave them very specific instructions as to what they were doing when they, after they crossed the river. You remember they picked up the ark, they carried the ark, the river parted, they crossed on dry land, even though that was happening at the flood uh, stage of the Jordan. So it, this was a, a pretty significant miracle. When just, the Jordan's not that great of a river, um, 
I'm sure a good athlete could jump it, probably, if you give him a good head of steam. But uh, at flood stage, it's pretty wide. So this was a significant thing that happened that they crossed on dry land. They went to Jericho, and you know the story. They defeated Jericho. But Joshua in Joshua chapter 4, before the battle of Jericho, gave them this admonition. And it came to pass, when all the people were clean passed over Jordan, that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every tribe a man. And command ye them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of the Jordan, out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones. And ye shall carry them over with you, and leave them in the lodging place where ye shall lodge this night. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan, and take up take you up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according unto the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. And then the reason that this may be a sign among you that when your children ask your, their fathers in time to come, saying, what mean ye by these stones? And then what they are supposed to say. Then ye shall answer them that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. And you will note that as you go around these different archaeological sites in Israel, you will see stones, standing stones. And they were put there for a reason, and they existed sometimes for hundreds of years until they were lost to history. But during the, the time that Israel was in the land and the northern kingdom divided into the northern and southern kingdoms, they could go to these places and they could see the stones and they could tell their children why they put these stones there because it was a place where God had demonstrated his faithfulness to them. So now, let me suggest to you that when you get to Matthew chapter 3, the verse actually means a little bit more than just some rocks. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. My personal opinion is that the, the, these stones means the stones that the 12 men had set up to memorialize the crossing of the Jordan when the Jordan divided so that the, feast, the priests could carry the Ark of the Covenant across on dry, firm, dry ground. And so at the time of John the Baptist, which would have been roughly 1,400, 13, 14, 1,500 years after this erection of those stones as a memorial, John the Baptist was able to point to them as an object lesson. Now, to me, that's, that's really great. I love PowerPoint, but that's PowerPointing. It happened right there. The power of the Lord. In fact, if you go to Madaba in Jordan, we've been there. Uh, we were there actually 25 years ago. There is a, a church, a Greek Orthodox Byzantine church in Madaba that has this rather elaborate mosaic on the floor. 
And it's kind of unusual because they don't, you can even walk across part of it. They don't, it's not really protected. Now, if they have people in there worshiping, they will uh, put a rug over it or something, a covering over it. But you can walk up and you can touch these stones, and these were erected centuries and centuries ago. This map, this mosaic map was made. And it's very interesting, if you look at one section of the map, in the upper right-hand corner, you see a boat that's crossing the Dead Sea. And then if you look to the left, you will see some palm trees. Let me see if I can get my... There we go. See these palm trees here? That represents Jericho. But what is also here is you see this Greek text. And this was the Greek was the language in use at the time the church was built. And the Greek text, you see it right there, is it means Gagalaktokai of the twelve stones. Gagal, well, you, you can see what it is there. And it's very interesting. So even after the time of Christ, they were noting the 12 stones. I'm guessing this church was built somewhere in the 500 AD range, 500, 600 AD. So these stones had stood as a memorial for a long time. Now, when we were in Israel a few years ago, we were able to go to Shechem. And there in Shechem, you see their uh, standing stone. Shechem is between Mount Ebal on the right, Mount Gerizim on the left. And it was a tell that was, had not been excavated. It was just covered over. And around 1903, they came to do it, and they started the excavations there. Uh, it's now next to the city of uh, novelist. This is Ernst Sellis, Sellen, and he excavated there. He found some cuneiform tablets. He found some walls. He found this giant temple fortress. And also they found there at Shechem. This is a very, very important biblical site. They actually found writing, like where they had changed from cuneiform to writing. So during the excavations, they excavated a gate, they excavated, this is the gate, a representation of the gate that they excavated. The city was sort of in an oval shape. And you can see this when you go there today. Uh, you kind of come in the back door instead of the front door. But there was in the middle, there was this temple fortress that they found, and it had an altar and this is talked about in the book of Joshua. It's also talked about in Judges chapter 9. And Abimelech, he was made king here in the period of the Judges. And there were a thousand people that hid out when there was a battle and they were killed inside this, um, that temple fortress. And it's pretty certain that this is what they were talking about in the, day, about the days of Abimelech and everything. And it sits there. It's, it's called Tel Balata by some of the archaeologists. But what you see there in front of that temple, you see an altar, and then you see this stone. And this is a, rep, you know, this is a rendering or a representation of what people think that Shechem looked like at the time of Joshua. And there again is the stone. And behind it, you're looking towards that temple. 
and I've been there. I've touched this stone. Uh, it had some Palestinian Arabic graffiti on it. That's Mount Gerizim in the background. The city you see in the background is the city of Nablus. It's an area where a lot of terrorists come from. Um, we happened to be there on a Friday morning when they were in uh, mosque. And I can tell you, I, I don't speak Arabic, but I was listening to the preacher. They broadcast them on loudspeakers, and they were not preaching agape love, I can tell you that. But, uh, so Shechem's a very significant site. If you, a little bit to the, the tall building there on the left, just past that building is a church that is built over a Greek Orthodox church that's built over a well, a very deep well. And that is Jacob's well, and that is where Jesus met the woman. So when Jesus was sitting there with the woman of Samaria, you know the story, she was from a, a village, and you can see there's a little village to the, to the south when you're standing on the tell. And Joel Kramer, our guy, said that's, that's the mosque they built over the place where the woman of Samaria lived, because that's an important story for them too. But when Jesus and her were talking, and she says, well, you know, your people worship in Jerusalem, but my people they, in that mountain, my people worship in this mountain. Again, she was doing the old PowerPoint thing. She was pointing at that mountain, and up on the top of that mountain, there's the remains of a Samaritan temple. And to this day, they practice, observe the Torah, and probably do a Passover that's much more biblical than any uh, Jewish congregation, synagogue, or temple on the planet. And they use a form of Hebrew that corresponds to the time of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Very interesting visit. But back to this thing, and, and Shechem was important. These are the Amar, uh, Amana letters. Uh, you'll find these in museums. These happen to be a picture of ones that I took in the uh, uh, British Museum when we were there about a year and a half ago. Uh, they're not that big. They would easily fit in the palm of your hand. They're like a stone almost. But they're in cuneiform, and they talk about, uh, it's a communication between the pharaoh in Egypt and the king there around Shechem. Uh, in part, there's many of these, there's, I think there's some at the Metropolitan Muse Museum in uh, New York. But they say essentially, hey, we're being overrun by these people, and the translation they have there is the Haparus. Haparu, Hebrew. When Abraham came into the promised land, when he came to Canaan like he had been instructed, he stopped in Shechem. Jacob bought a well there. Joseph, when he gave instructions, remember when he died, he told his children and his brothers, listen, put me in a coffin and bury me in the land of Canaan. Bury me in the land of, that God has given to us. And they did. And so they drug poor old Joseph around in that coffin in the wilderness for 40 years. I guess you would say it was a drag. <laughs> and they took his body and they buried him not too far from this standing stone that you see in um, Shechem. But we weren't able to go there to Joseph's tomb because it's a very, very volatile area. So Joshua gathered the people together, and you can read about this in the latter chapters of Joshua. The first thing he did was he divided the people. He put 
people on Mount Ebal and he put people on Mount Gerizim and one shouted the blessings if they kept the commands of the Lord and the other shouted the curses. And this was not, it's a sort of a natural amphitheater there. It's about a mile between the two mountains. But by my estimate, if the number of people that left Egypt were well in excess of 2 million, and while a lot of them died off in the wilderness, they had children, the children in, they entered into the land. They, there were probably over a million people on each mountain when they did this. And I would suspect that it would have kind of a big impact on the, um, the Canaanite people that lived there at the time. I mean, if you've been downtown when they've, or around when they're having these protests and you have a few thousand people yelling and shouting, it can be very disconcerting. Now imagine if you have a couple million doing it. But anyway, so after all of this, Joshua is getting ready to pass on and everything. And, he, and Joshua said unto the people, Ye are witnesses against yourselves that ye have chosen you the Lord to serve him. This is Joshua chapter 24. And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you, and incline your heart unto the Lord God of Israel. And the people said unto Joshua, The Lord we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. This is a thing that happened in a real place in a real time. And Joshua 24 says this, And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone and set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. So they took this temple that was there and they dedicated it to the Lord. And Joshua said unto all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness unto us for it hath heard all the words of the Lord which he spake unto us. It shall be therefore a witness unto you, lest ye deny you. And so here's the stone as it sits today in Shechem. God uses these memorials to instruct us of the past in part to remember the good things that happened, but also to remember the bad things that happened and what is the right way to act. And yet we have a lot of people, and I'm seeing church after church after church going along with this notion that we can just tear it all down. You see, what happened to Shechem is Eventually that stone, and this is only, this is about seven feet high. <clears throat> when they found the stone, when Selen was excavating, he found this stone. It was about 22 feet, seven meters long. That's a big stone. That's pretty heavy. And a lot of the Germans, they, they didn't come from an evangelical fundamental background or anything like that. They didn't really believe the Bible and when Selen said, that's the stone of Joshua, they were upset. So they took it and they threw it in a dump. And it broke into three pieces. And it was later, somebody came back and said, you know, I, I think that might be the stone of Joshua. So they took one, the biggest piece, the bottom piece, 
and erected it there. So you can have a kind of an idea, but it was really about 22 feet high, so it was not an insignificant thing. We also know in Isaiah chapter 19 that in the future, the Lord will also use stones like this. Isaiah chapter 19, verse 19, And that day shall be there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors, and he shall send them a Savior, and a great one he shall deliver them. Now, I bring this up in the context of what's going on in Israel today, and it's something that bothers me a great bit. There was an article that I referenced last week, and they followed up on it this week, is what happens to the West Bank archaeological sites under the Trump plan? Because there are many, many sites. I mean, you, you, you can't drive anywhere. And I think the estimates that I've seen is that maybe 1% of the archaeological sites have actually been excavated. And there's a concern that if these are turned over to the Palestinians, they'll be destroyed because they prove Israel's presence and right in history, history in the land. And these are, listen, where, where Shechem is is in the mountains of Israel, in the central highlands, and this is the biblical heartland, and this is, the, this is what's being fought over. This is what the Palestinians claim is theirs. Israel claims it's theirs. I told you about the San Remo conference last week in 1920, 100 years ago. The League of Nations got together and said, belongs to the Jewish people. And that was adopted by the League of Nations, international law. That was also adopted by the United Nations. You think the United Nations understands its own history? No. Do you see the, how this is all connected? So this week, there's a, a good article at the um, Algeminer website by Daniel Pipes called Jerusalem, Jordan, and the Jews. And in this article, he references a white paper that was just published by the kingdom, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. That would be King Abdullah, son of King Hussein, who were given control of these holy sites in and around Jerusalem and elsewhere in the Holy Land, after the Ottoman Empire fell apart. They had actually been the custodians of the mosque in Mecca and Medina, but when the Saud family took those over, they were kicked out. So to give this Hashemite tribe uh, a, a, you know, a, a consolation prize, they were given Jerusalem, holy sites, and Israel. And they appointed a guy called the Wak, the Grand Mufti, and he is the most important holy person outside of Saudi Arabia. He controls these holy sites in Jerusalem. So uh, it talks about the Temple Mount. Um, and in there, you'll see there's sections in this uh, white paper that was produced. What is, what is meant by the Islamic holy sites of Jerusalem? Then there's another section that says this, the custodianship of the Christian holy sites in Jerusalem. Now I looked, praise the Lord for word search. 
I went through the document, looking up Jew-Jewish. Only ever presented in a negative way. Only. And so I hear people on the radio like Rick Wiles praising what a great brother and ecumenical guy King Abdul of Jordan is. Baloney. Okay? Just baloney on that. So here, this is what it says. Consequently, Jerusalem was always an Arab city. Attested to in the book of Ezekiel, and they say, this is the sovereign Lord, says to Jerusalem, your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. However, when the ancient Jews came, they attacked, killed, and destroyed everyone and everything they could. And it cites the book of Joshua. Even after they conquered the city of Jerusalem, however, they were able to they were never able to expel all the original Arab inhabitants. And this is true. And by the way, the flip side of this is true. When, when Rome came and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, since 70 AD, there's always been a Jewish presence in Jerusalem. So that's why I don't, frankly, you don't need to send me emails. You don't need to send me links to videos. I've watched all of them. I think the Jews know where their temple was. They've been in Jerusalem ever since. And there's a theory now that it's not where at the Temple Mount. Um, in short, the biblical record shows that Palestinian Arabs are the first and original inhabitants of Palestine and Jerusalem. And in the last sentence there, and they are still here today over 5,000 years later. So th this is what we would call in the law, where this is compounding a felony. Uh, where you built, you know, you keep committing a felony after felony because this is compounding lie upon lie upon lie. They now say we go back 5,000 years. They don't have any historical record of that. It says here, termination of the Islamic custodianship of these holy sites in Jerusalem can only come about through the consent of the Hashemite custodian himself or through the unanimous, the unanimous consent of the Islamic world or, the, or their legitimate representatives, the OIC, um, Organization of Islamic Countries, and through the presence of a viable replacement, which can never, 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 never be Jewish or Israeli. And they also talk about this, and so this is in the white pair. Summary and conclusion. In summary, the Hashemite custodianship is a unique historical 100-year-plus interfaith institute that pertains to Islam's oldest dynasty and most prestigious family. They claim to be descent, direct descendants of Muhammad, and that maintains the Islamic holy sites and protects the Christian holy sites while guaranteeing the rights of 4 billion Muslims and Christians to worship in their holy sites in the Holy Land. See, I read this, what King Hussein and his government puts out, and I'm like, do you ever, like, you know there's, is, there's Jewish people living there? You know all these sites confirm the historicity of their presence in the land? And here they talk about recent violations of the status quo. Unilateral Israeli archaeological excavations continue to take place in the old city of Jerusalem and its surroundings at an unprecedented rate. The main purpose of these illegal excavations is to create facts on the ground. No, it's to determine what happened there historically. 
What they have done, the WACF has done, is they've gone in and they've bulldozed out areas of the Temple Mount without regard to the archaeological sensitivity of the region of the area and destroyed artifacts because they want to create facts on the ground. So this is just a typical of what they the negative thing. And so Daniel Pipes he says in his article about this, how disappointing that the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, which wishes to be seen as responsible and moderate, publishes such twaddle in a purported scholarly study. I need to add that to my vocabulary. Twaddle. It is all the more dismaying when one recalls that King Abdul II, Jordan's ruler since 1999, has taken a brave and forthright stand against Islamists. An Islamist-style white paper applauded by a Palestinian anti-Zionist substantially undercuts anything that he said against these Islamic. The white paper promotes a familiar Islamic imperialism. Other recent examples include Turkish President Erdogan's government insisting that the Hagia Sophia Cathedral was originally a mosque, and Muslims pressing to use the Cordoba Cathedral in Spain as a mosque. And he notes, listen, they, they say, you know, the Arabs established Jerusalem 5,000 years ago. It's just not true. This is, this is the um, King Abdul's website. Just not true. Here's a little example. This is what he said in Sochi, Russia, late in the latter part of last year. A two-state solution that provides real peace in accord with international law, and UN resolutions, an end to the conflict, a viable, independent, sovereign Palestinian state on the June 4th, 1967 lines with East Jerusalem as its capital, but living side by side with Israel in mutual peace and security. A deep and shared concern for all of us is safeguarding Jerusalem, its holy sites and the historic Muslim and Christian presence in the city. Do you see what he does? He leaves a out deep one group. and shared concern for all of us is safeguarding Jerusalem, its holy sites and the historic Muslim and Christian presence in the city. Through the Hashemite custodianship of Islamic and Christian holy sites, Jordan is working to maintain peace and diffuse tensions. But all countries have an obligation to honor the holy city's heritage by making it a unifying city of peace. Unless it's, what, Israel and the Jews. Then we could do it. This is an interesting thing. This was published by the Supreme Muslim Council in uh, Jerusalem in 1924. And it talks about Al-Haram Al-Sharif. That's the Temple Mount area. And in there, there's a quote on page four that you can buy uh, reproductions of this. It says this, the site, okay, now this is, this is the appointed by the Hashemite king, now the, the leader of the Supreme Muslim Council. This is what they said back in 1924. And I think in 1924, uh, they had appointed... Um, uh, Al Husseini as the as the walk there as the uh, uh, the top holy guy there in the city of Jerusalem the Muslim guy so he publishes this 
And he was a notorious anti-Semite. The site is one of the oldest in the world. Its sanctity dates from the earliest, perhaps from prehistoric times. Its identity with the site of Solomon's temple is beyond dispute. Would somebody please buy a copy of this and, and, and FedEx it to King Abdullah? And read your own doc, read the documents of the people that you govern their successors now. Why don't you read the documents that they wrote back in 1924? This too is the spot according to the universal belief on which David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So listen, I'll believe King Abdullah when he incorporates the truth. Until then, he's not telling the truth. So, Daniel Pipes concludes in his article, the Jordanian government can and should do better. If falsifying ancient history seems like a small matter, it is not. Such errors form opinions, shape governments, and potentially lead to renewed hostilities. Where are the historians and theologians to denounce these falsehoods? Well, I know a bunch of them, and we do it here. King Abdullah is lying. He's making it up. Where, uh, where are the friends of Jordan to urge a responsible course? Where are the Israelis inhibited by an ever-present mistress syndrome to protest this calumny? And there are some, but increasingly, it's just like, yeah, you know, just let it go. It's not that important. Because you see this, this whole theory, what we've been teaching kids in schools and everything is, just tear down the system. You can do better. We've evolved to a higher plane. The facts would seem to indicate otherwise. You know, over the um, last few months, I've sort of jokingly referred to people like Secretary General Guterres from the United Nations and other people as our guest prophecy updaters. And I do, I do get emails every now and then that you're really a lot of doom and gloom. And as I sort of... Um, edited out a lot of things this week. I, I saw so many people talking about that this whole thing, it's unraveling. This is the front page of the exchange section of yesterday's Wall Street Journal. And what, what do they say? Six months that shook the world. And they go through and they look at things like the unemployment rate, unemployment claims, businesses going under 48% and increase of Chapter 11 bankruptcy filings to reorganize compared to a year ago. These are numbers that we've never seen before. And I saw a number of people, I don't want to distress you, that said, we are never going back to what it was like in January. Interesting enough, before the Trump peace plan came. Now, there will be people that tell you that we are, but I, I personally don't believe them. And I also am of the view, and I heard an economist this morning, and I can't remember where it was now, who said, listen, this, whole, this thing was unraveling last fall. Nobody knew it. It was a debt-fueled bubble. And this economist's admonition was, listen, get out of debt, 
Because what's going to be important in the coming months is land, food, and water. That's what you should be concerned about at the present time. Because that will help you survive. Place to live, something to eat, water to drink. So there's uh, another thing that's noted here is an 81% decline in travelers going through TSA checkpoints Wednesday compared with the same date last year. That's after things have opened up a little bit. It's still down 81% from a year ago. Um, a 72% drop in the number of rigs drilling for oil in the U.S. this year. 48% increase in U.S. filings for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. I could go on and on and on. BMW cuts 6,000 jobs. Qantas cuts 6,000 jobs. Rolls-Royce cuts, well, I don't know what, 10 or 20,000 jobs. Airline after airline. And then here's The Economist. The Economist always has these kind of interesting, um, you know, it's published, you know, by the elite, financial elite, and people look at it. Now, I don't think they're profits, but, and I'm not sure they're necessarily tipping where they think it will go, but they're certainly, they're certainly giving us some information about how they think things are going to go, what they think should happen. By the way, somebody sent me this this morning. Uh, let me see if I can find this. President Obama speaks. He finally appeared at a campaign rally for Biden. And I think I've been saying this since he did that speech, well, before he was elected, but particularly that speech that he gave in Cairo on June 4th, 2009, that I think led directly to the Arab Spring. This is a guy who was mentored by Bill Ayers of the Weather Underground. Do you know that some of the founders and leaders of Black Lives Matter were also mentored by Bill Ayers? And his wife had a cushy job teaching at North, Bernadine Dorn, was that her name? She had a cushy job teaching at Northwestern University Law School, where I think the tuition and stuff runs around $80,000 a year to be taught lies. Here's what Obama said at this rally. The good news, what makes me optimistic is, now this is in the context of cities melting down. The good news, what makes me optimistic is, the fact that there is a great awakening going on around the country, particularly among younger people who are saying, not only are they fed up with the shambolic, Shambolic, disorganized, mean-spirited approach to governance that we've seen over the last couple of years. By the way, when a, left per, a lefty is criticizing you and being very mean, they're describing themselves almost every time. So when a disorganized, mean-spirited approach to governance, that characterized the Obama administration. It, listen, with regard to... Obama, if hypocrisy was water, the world would drown. It would be a repeat of Noah's flood. Over the last couple of years, but more, than our, but more than that are eager to take on some of the core challenges that have been facing this country for centuries. 
married to a woman who said she lived in a house, the White House, built by slaves. A absolute bald-faced lie. So anyway, The Economist, the next catastrophe and how to survive it. And The Economist does this. Like each year they have this, the world for the next year. So in the end of 2015, they published the world in 2016. And the end of 2016, and they always have these, all these symbols there that you got to kind of look for, look for. Like the guy down here is in the bubble. Somebody's living in a bubble. Then the world in 2017, they did these uh, tarot-type cards. Again, I don't, I don't put a lot of stock in them other than the fact that they were looking at world events and they were analyzing it about things that were, things that were coming. Then they did the world in 2018 where they did all of these icons. Then they did the world in 2019, which had sort of built on this... Uh, um, Michelangelo's drawing of a man and just had a lot of symboli- sim- symbols there. And you see the panda there sitting on top of the world? You see, understand what they're trying to say is China's rising, it's going to sit on top of the world. Then last year they did this little word thing, the world in 2020. And in there they had Trump and Brexit and I think Bitcoin is in those words there, Russia, uh, insolvency. Um, so it, it's very interesting. It's just it's an interesting thing to watch because this is what some of the world elite thinks and this is where they're going. And then, but I always say, you know, people say, well, you Christians, you just, you fuck, you're so negative. You think all this stuff is going to happen in the end times? Come on, be positive. Hey, I'm just reading the account. Not only am I reading Revelation, and by the way, it all works out great for Christians in the end. Really, really great. Whether you die, pray that your death glorifies God. Whether you live and go in the rapture, praise the Lord. But look at, look at what they look at. They, so they have like here in the lower left-hand corner, they have a pig face. I think that's an indication that there's going to be meat shortages. Just my guess. They have here, they have a volcano exploding. And I, I don't know if I have a chart. I, I, ha- I saw a chart this week. I don't think I put it in. Of like volcanic eruptions and how much emissions and CO2 and stuff they put into the atmosphere. And there was one back in the 1300s that put enough stuff in the atmosphere that it affected the world's weather for like two or three years. So they, they think that could happen. You have global warming, the next one. You have a meteor hitting Earth. Does any of this sound like it's coming out of the book of Revelation? Or Daniel? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure about the, uh, the ducks or whatever there. I'm not sure what's, what's up with that. I haven't thought about this one enough. The next one, of course, is coronavirus, nuclear war, and then below that, a discharge, a magnetic discharge from the sun, which could fry a lot of electronics. It almost looks like, so there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven pictures there. It's almost like the seven seals, their version of the seven seals of Revelation. And then also look at the clock in the middle. 
so I always an interesting when secular people who don't know Bible prophecy are talking about the same thing. But here's, and, and so Obama's talking about a great awakening. Well, I have to tell you, I'm concerned because I see some factions on the right talking about a great awakening too. And I'm just telling you, when I see that coming from either side, I'm really, I'm nervous about it. Because I know what it, it leads to totalitarianism. They, they can tell you all this other stuff. I'm concerned about it. But so maybe I need to get that into my prophecy updates. The Economist clock where it's a minute to midnight. So let's look at just some other things that are going on in the world. And we'll... Um, Get out of here. There was a terrorist attack in London the other day. I think it was London. Um, I don't remember the town that it, where it took place. A guy known to MI5 as a potential terrorist wasn't really being watched, and he came and stabbed and killed three people, including an American teacher. Mentioned Egypt earlier. This thing continues to goes on between Egypt and Ethiopia. Dispute over Nile Dam escalates. There are there's a lot of, in the Arab press particularly, a lot of concern about this. What's at stake for Egypt and Ethiopia on the Nile Dam? This will, so Ethiopia said July 1st, we're starting to fill it up. Now, they, they say they may take 12 years. Other people think they may take six. If they take six years, it's going to destroy hundreds of thousands of acres of farmland in Egypt, which relies on the Nile River for virtually everything. 98% of the people live within a short distance of the Nile River, of 85 million people. This is a huge problem. If they diminish the flow, there will be less water going into dams that people use to generate electricity downstream. That will cause power problems. So 85 people, 85 million people with inadequate food supplies and inadequate power supplies could actually be a problem. There's a graphic from the Arab Times talking about the talks that are going on between Egypt and Ethiopia. Sort of looks, yeah, they're building a brick wall. They're building a dam in between them, and it almost looks like they're playing Battleship. But uh, it's, a, uh, it's a big deal. Free speech continues to be, I think, under attack. Here's an editorial. I mentioned this last fall when it first came up. Uh, this book by Abigail Schreier says, Irreversible Damage, the Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. So she wrote an op-ed in the Washington or the Wall Street Journal the other day that said this, If you write a book celebrating troubled teenage girls suddenly coming out as transgender in friend groups, pursuing a regimen of cross-sex hormones and surgeries, Amazon will happily promote it. But if you write a book that points out the risks of this gender journey, Amazon wants nothing to do with you. This is the reason, this is the lesson my publisher, Regenery, learned last week when Amazon informed it that Regenery wouldn't be permitted to run a sponsored ad for my book, Irreversible Damage, the Transgender Craze. Amazon's state, stated reason for barring the ad, a simple picture of my book's cover, was this. 
It contains elements that may not be appropriate for all audience, which may include ad copybook content that infers or claims to diagnose, treat, or question sexual orientation. The biggest fascists in the country are the corporations. In fact, the book was, has nothing to do with sexual orientation, she writes. Building on the work of Brown University's public health researcher, Lisa Littman, Irreversible Damage argues that transgender identification among teen girls has become a social contagion. Girls who might have been encouraged each other in bulimia, anorexia, or cutting, or today deciding they have gender dysphoria, pushing for hormones and surgeries, and easily obtaining them. The numbers are startling. In the nearly 100-year diagnostic history of gender dysphoria, se severe discomfort in one's biological sex, the disorder fir first appeared in early childhood and overwhelmingly affected boys. Today, teen girls with no history of childhood dysphoria are suddenly the leading demographic. The number of gender surgeries on girls and women in the U.S. quadrupled from 2016 to 2017. One year, they quadrupled. Uh, it's... So you can't, you can't advertise on Amazon. They, I think the book is available on Amazon, but you can't advertise it, okay? Because we, we really wouldn't want people learning the truth. This is a lady that worked for an um, organization, an honorary Booker Prize Foundation in England. And she had tweeted something or said something on social media that she was... Um, Opposed to same-sex marriage. Gone. She's gone. Bye. We don't need your kind around here anymore. I believe it, her husband was the one who funded the foundation to give a literary prize. This uh, editorial in the London Times the other day, let's reject the intolerance of woke warriors to which I say a hearty amen. Let's reject the intolerance of woke warriors and predator pastors who submit to this nonsense. Facebook is getting involved. The problem they're having at Facebook now is that a lot of corporations are saying, hey, Facebook, if you're not going to, if you're not going to, cut off people who want to advertise or uh, censor posts that we don't like in corporate America that don't uh, co uh, conform to our wokeness scale, then we're not advertising with you. Under mounting pressure from advertisers, Facebook Inc. said it would start labeling political speech that violates its rules and take measures to prevent voter suppression and protect minorities from abuse. Now, I read that and I would think, well, they're, oh, so they're going to stop some of the stuff that the Democratic Party is doing. No. The new policies were announced Friday shortly after the Wall Street Journal reported that consumer goods giant Unilever is halting U.S. advertising on Facebook and Twitter for at least the remainder of the year, citing hate speech and divisive content on the platforms. The Blaze says this, liberal groups are successfully pressuring major advertisers to withdraw ad revenue from Facebook. A number of liberal groups have apparently decided that the social media companies are not doing enough 
to enforce liberal orthodoxy and have begun a successful campaign to get companies to stop advertising there. And here's a screenshot of Unilever's webpage, driving a responsible social or digital ecosystem in these polarized times. Unilever said this, given our responsibility framework and the polarized atmosphere in the U.S., we have decided that starting now through at least the end of the year, we will not run brand advertising and social media newsfeed platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter in the U.S. Continuing to advertise on these platforms at this time would not add value to people and society. We will be monitoring ongoing and will revisit our current position if necessary. Baloney. They're never revisiting their position. They're never going back. Chicago. A few weeks ago, over 100 people shot. In one weekend, like between Friday night at 5 and Monday morning at 5 a.m. Last weekend... 102 to 110 shot, several killed, including a three-year-old. This is Chicago Tribune saying, Chicago city of shame and violence. Down below is an editorial cartoon, says uh, Kim is getting ready to just do something a baby Kim there is getting ready to do something to destroy America and says, well, I think they're doing a pretty good job on their own. I don't know that they need their help. What's interesting in these articles when you read about the violence in Chicago, people are saying, where are the police? Where are the police? I thought you wanted to defund them. I thought you wanted to dismantle them. If hypocrisy was was water, the world would drown. This is a story from the New York Times picked up by a number of other news outlets. Uh, first of all, front page of the New of Washington Post, in Minneapolis, an unprecedented burst of violence. So ever since they've tried to get the police to back off, guess what's happened? Violence has gone off. It reminds me of this ridiculous nonsense, and I, I have a master's degree in criminology, so I'm well aware of statistics and all these things. But I remember reading in California said California puts more criminals in jail, crime falls, people wondering what's going on. They actually said this in like the LA Times. Wait a minute, (laughs) you put the criminals in jail so they don't do as much crime. That's why the crime goes down. Oh, that's that's racist. You're not woke enough to talk on that subject. Well, here's Powderhorn. This is one of these uber-liberal neighborhoods in Minneapolis. And what they're saying is they've had this huge uh, homeless camp set up in a park in the neighborhood. And guess what's happening? Crime, petty theft, those type of things are are happening. And so the, the people are going around saying, well, we're so woke, we're going to resist the urge to call the police if something bad happens. Well, they don't say what they're going to do. They're just going to try to tough it out, I guess. It's, it's like this. It's Romans one thing. Then there was this thing with uh, 
NASCAR, the noose in the garage. You heard about that, Bubba Wallace. He's, a, I think, the only black driver in NASCAR. Uh, found a noose in his garage. And, uh, and so I think 15 FBI agents descended on the Talladega Speedway in Alabama to investigate this. This is horrible. NASCAR issued things you know, about how horrible this was. We don't stand for this. And they had a great kumbaya moment before the race at Talladega last Monday. But then Tuesday, the FBI came out and says, well, you know, that news, uh, it was there in the garage last year. We have photographic evidence of it. So it probably wasn't directed at this guy. And it took this guy at least a day and a half before he finally came out, Bubba Wallace is his name, to say that he was relieved that it was not a racial incident. Shouldn't he have been relieved right out of the box that it was not a racial incident? He had to milk it more on CNN. In Israel, there's a big fight right now over annexation. Um, July 1st, they're supposed to do something. The agreement that was entered into between the blue and white and Likud parties to form the joint government in Israel says that we won't do any annexation until July 1st. So now there's the question. You know, you saw Dor Gold last week. He says, we don't need to annex anything. It's ours anyway. Just We'll just do whatever we need to do to keep the peace and govern it. Uh, other people say, no, you got to annex. It's symbolic. Some people say, no, you can't annex this. You're not annexing enough. And it's, it's, it's a huge mess. Every now and then, Israeli politics sort of fulfills the promise that, it's, that makes our politics look sort of calm and passive by, by uh, comparison. But uh, the, the concern is that they're going to do... Um, uh, you know, they're, they're going to have these, um, an intifada where people are going to be attacking Israel and terrorist attacks and that type of thing, a lot of which came from Nablus. In Saudi Arabia, Hajj 2020, they usually get like two, two and a half, three million people coming on the pilgrimage to Mecca and Medina. This year it's curtailed to 1,000. This is, these things are really sort of, I guess you would say, unprecedented. The UN Security Council came out this week with an updated report on Resolution 2334. I won't go into details on that. But Resolution 2334 was the one adopted on December, uh, was voted on by the UN Security Council on December 25th, 2016, in which the United States did not veto it. And so now the UN and the nations of the world are going full force to implement Resolution 2334 because the United States is on record as not opposing it. So they came out with their quarterly report this week. And that again, this leads to more things going on. Abdullah Jordan says this annexation, this is just terrible. I think he's afraid that his kingdom will fall. He's, I think 80% of Jordan is Palestinian, um, Palestinian Arab. He has, he has a major problem there. So they had a big meeting in Washington this week. Everybody thought, oh, now we're going to know. Somebody's going to make a decision as to what to do. And at the end of the day, they said, well, we really don't know what to do. We'll pass on it for a while. I mentioned water problems last week that China's causing around uh, 
Tibet, they're taking all the water, they're damming it up, and it's causing problems in Southeast Asia and India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, because they're cutting off the water source. Well, now this week, China has a problem with, guess what, too much water. They have a massive dam called the Three Gorges Dam. It's the largest hydroelectric plant on the planet. And there are concerns being expressed by some Chinese engineers. And they're always dismissed as political or not uh, along with the Chinese regime. So there's concern that if, that if it continues to rain, the Three Gorges Dam could fail. And the Three Gorges Dam fails, guess what? You have a massive flood. And you have a massive flood in cities with millions of people like Shanghai. And estimates range up to 100 million people could die. Now, I don't know if it's going to happen, uh, but you can kind of see the... Uh, um, you can kind of see what's going on there. This is the, uh, this is the flooding in one city in China. You see how it's flooding on the street and rolling down over the hill into the river below. Massive flooding just everywhere. Well, the UN has had its 75th anniversary this week. Here's a couple-minute clip of Secretary General Guterres talking about what he wants to see happen in the world today on the occasion of the 75th anniversary of the great world organization, the United Nations. I send my warmest greetings to we the peoples. Those first three words of our founding charter, adopted 75 years ago today, give the United Nations its vision and its mission. We exist to serve people and we work as one for the benefit of all. COVID-19 has touched everyone everywhere, precisely the kind of global challenge for which the United Nations was founded. At the same time, people continue to lose trust in political establishments. Today's marches against racism were preceded by widespread protests against inequality, discrimination, corruption, and lack of opportunities all over the world. Grievances that still need to be addressed, including with a renewed social contract. Meanwhile, other fundamental fragilities have only grown. The climate crisis, environmental degradation, cyber attacks, nuclear proliferation, a pushback on human rights, and the risk of another pandemic. It's not difficult to imagine a new virus transmitted as easily as COVID-19, but as deadly as Ebola. The delegates in San Francisco in 1945, having themselves lived through a global pandemic, depression and war, seized their opportunity to plant the seeds of something better and new. Today, we must do the same. To achieve that watershed moment, we need to reimagine multilateralism, give it this to function as the founders intended and ensure that effective global governance is a reality when it is needed. We must also bring others to the table in an inclusive and networked multilateralism since governments are only part of today's political realities. Civil society, cities, the private sector and young people are essential voices in shaping the world we want. Like those who drafted the Charter, we must look without illusion at today's injustices, their roots, and the suffering they engender. Yet, there is also much to encourage us and drive us onward. The heroism and solidarity of the pandemic response, the global embrace of the Sustainable Development Goals, the millions of young activists and global citizens 
pushing to advance equality, climate action, a green economy, and to take control of their destiny. Well, enough of that, but I, we should start a pool whenever he's speaking, like how far into the speech or talk or clip will it be until he mentions sustainable development goals and Agenda 2030 and that type of thing. So if you're looking at the clip, it was about five and a half minutes in uh, that he finally brought that up. It's interesting. It shows the growth of the UN and the number of countries that have uh, joined. There's 193, <clears throat> South Sudan being the most recent. But here's a headline from, um, I think this is an article in The Economist, 75 years after the UN's founding, the world order is at risk of collapse. And look at these things. This is uh, unemployment rates around the world. Did it look like they went up? Now, Europe, they didn't go up as much, but they have what they call shadow unemployment rates and real unemployment rates that... Europe is funding a lot of people that are staying home and not working, zombie, un zombie employment, they call it. And so if you include the zombie jobs, it doesn't look so bad, but if you take them out all over Europe, they're having a massive spike in unemployment just like they are everywhere else. Looking at, uh, this is an article from the Wall Street about restaurants. Fast food restaurants are doing good, but... Um, Restaurants with drive-through service are doing well, but others are struggling. I think the group that manages Olive Garden and those restaurants, their revenue is about 48% of what it was a year ago. It's hard for these to sustain. Um, even Disney World, this is another article in the same Wall Street Journal yesterday, the Magic Kingdom is losing its spell. They need... Um, they made like four, about $5 billion off Disneyland and Disney World last year, but this year they, I think, I can't remember the number they need. They need tens of thousands of people a day running through there. Now, there's an interesting, somebody sent me these, uh, there's these two guys in the UK, and I cannot remember their names, but they have a very interesting little website. They kind of sit around and talk. They're conservatives, uh, sort of libertarians. And they cited a speech, this is a speech given by British High Commissioner Laura Clark, pondering the changes that COVID-19 has brought to the world and it has destroyed globalization. Now, the UK and Italy will host a big climate change, get all the world together, we're gonna to solve all this problem. It was supposed to be last fall, or supposed to be earlier this year, it's gonna be, um, it's now in November, it got canceled. So here's what she said in her speech. So she's a financial government person from the UK. The death and disruption caused by the novel coronavirus pandemic is unprecedented in our lifetimes. It is truly global crisis, over 9 million deaths worldwide, over four, or 9 million cases, over 475,000 deaths, and a devastating impact on our economies and way of life. But as it, as Maddie challenges us, killed globalization, as it killed the instinct at the individual business and state level to live, work, and travel internationally, to trade across borders, to cooperate in tackling global challenges and pursuing common goods, I'm going to say straight away that I think the answer is B. COVID hasn't killed globalization, but it has made the world a far more dangerous place and changed how we work and think internationally. So I'm going to focus on what I see as the risk and opportunities posed by COVID-19 to our globalized world. I'm going to set, a bleak, set out a bleak view, sorry, 
So instead of writing to me this week, write to her, <laughs> Laura Clark. I'm going to set an oblique view in which the risks far outweigh the opportunities. But then I'm going to try, good internationalist I am, to outline where we have had successes today, where there are opportunities, and how we can best seize them. We must collectively, and here's the money quote, we must collectively support a green and resilient recovery, building on the principles of the Paris Agreement and the Sustainable Development Goals. The economic prize on offer is clear. So to conclude, we are living in, great in times of great uncertainty and great disruption. No one knows when a vaccine will be found and when we will return to anything like normal. The challenge facing us in terms of the global health response and supporting the most vulnerable is enormous. The outlook is bleak. So here are these guys, they're talking a little bit about that. I'll just kind of jump into their conversation because I think they had some interesting comments. Uh, and I, again, I apologize, I can't remember their names. And of course, if you're in the type of business which doesn't fit the model of a green recovery, sustainable development and so on, your business will not be encouraged to recover at all. We've reported this in past UK column news programs that UK government spokespeople have made this statement or at least asking the question, do we want to restart any business that doesn't fit uh, in with the green recovery? So let's uh, move on to uh, uh, Sir Geoffrey Adams, who's British ambassador to Egypt, and he made a joint statement with the Italian ambassador to, to Egypt because Britain and Italy are co-hosting uh, COP26. And he said uh, this yesterday, as we recover from COVID-19, we have a rare opportunity to rebuild in a way that lays the foundation for sustainable, resilient and inclusive growth. The international community can and must unite to tackle the climate crisis. This is certainly being taken, of the least you can say is it's being taken advantage of in order to pursue uh, an economic policy which fits with the whole climate crisis narrative uh, sustainability, Agenda 21 and Agenda 2030. And didn't we talk about this in the early days of this crisis, like COVID coming together with climate change now coming together like a hand in glove. So they're, they're foisting this upon us right now uh, like it's some, you know, revelation that they've had because of the novel coronavirus when in fact this was already in the works, this was planned well in advance. You only need to go to the World Economic Forum's own website and look right now at their COVID action plan and you can see that this wasn't just something that came up spontaneously because of the coronavirus. They have already architected this well in advance. No, absolutely. And if you're on the, while you're on the World Economic Forum website, go and look for the Great Reset. Uh, this is being fronted by Prince Charles for some reason. Uh, there's a, a little introductory video there, but you can see if you read the documentation that goes alongside that, uh, this again is something which has not just been created in the last two months. There's been This has been worked on for a long time. So we maintain, last thing I'll say is we maintain that the crisis has been completely overblown. The threat has been completely overblown and adopted by a number of countries led by the United States and the UK globally for that agenda. Of course, China is also on board with this as well. And so if it's overblown, if there's no real threat uh, compared to other well-known infectious diseases, Mike, yet all of this regulation is coming in, all of these things have been shut down. Mm -hmm. They're blaming the co coronavirus. It's not the coronavirus that shut economies down. It's governments. It's governments. It's policy. Important to make that distinction. Uh, absolutely. Um, so uh, the latest global financial stability report has been released by the International Monetary Fund. I talked a little bit about this last week. They also have an update from June. 
Uh, just some interesting charts from this Global Financial Stability Update, June 2020. Uh, look at this chart, uh, U.S. equity prices and consumer confidence. The, red, uh, the green line is consumer confidence. The red line is the S&P 500. So if you're, look, they're buying up everything, okay? There's, everything's going to be consolidated in the hands of fewer and fewer people, and I don't like that. Here's an interesting chart, central bank assets. Uh, the green is the United States. Do you see the big spike there in 2020? You see the big spike in central bank assets all over the world. Central banks are buying up everything. Uh, they also have a, a, a thing in here about how this is going to, four things they point out. First, they say an advance in emerging market economies like corporate and household debt burdens could become unmanageable for some. And I saw another economist talking like, man, I've been saying for years, get out of debt. Get out of debt, worry about where you live, food and water for now. Gold's going to go up, but eventually the food, water, and land thing are going to be the most important. Second, they say this, insolvencies will test the resilience of the banking sector. We're already seeing a spike of that, up almost 50% in the United States compared to a year ago. Third, non-bank financial companies and markets may face further stress. Fourth, some emerging and frontier markets are facing high external refinancing requirements. Here's, in fact, this front page of the Columbus Dispatch this morning. City of Columbus is worried about tax revenue. Why? People aren't coming down to Columbus to work. They're working at home in Dublin. We don't get the tax. Why should we pay for anything? You told the police to stand down. Use that savings to fund whatever it is you want, Mayor Ginther. In an era of environment of difficult policy trade-offs, the IMF report says authorities need to continue to support the recovery while ensuring the soundness of financial institutions and preserving financial stability. Translation, just, have, just print money like crazy. A couple things geopolitically. There's a huge blast at an Iranian ballistic uh, missile plant uh, according to the missile plant near Tehran, huge blast. You can kind of see an image of it there. Um, not a lot of word out of Iran right now as to what happened. Uh, here's a before picture. You can see that something happened because there's a big black hole. So before and after. And then you can see the size of these buildings and everything around and roads and all that other stuff. So it gives you an idea of something blew up there. Uh, Colonel Kemp, who uh, was in the British forces, Richard Kemp, said this explosion in eastern Iran's mountains was caused by a cyber attack that turned the facility on itself, destroying Iran's Shahab long-range missile force stored in the Kajir Tunnel Base Complex, as well as the Solid Fuel Production Facility. And then I think I will end with two things. I would recommend that you go to the Jerusalem Post. I don't think it's been published in the paper yet, but this is on the Jerusalem Post website. Uh, there should be a link in the show notes under the YouTube, uh, our YouTube video today. A great article by Seth Fransman. 24 hours of war in the Middle East leaves the re region shaking. And he's looking, he's like, there's stuff going on in Libya, Yemen, Syria, 
Iran, Iraq, Iraq is kicking out Iranian militia units, and then there's this blast in Tehran, and Erdogan's bombing the Kurds, and Yemen is falling apart, and Turkey's trying to get involved there. And the, the common theme of all of this seems to be that even though Turkey's having problems, <coughs> Erdogan marches on. And so this is an interesting, I found this video, it's a pro Erdogan website, uh, YouTube channel, but, and I kind of sped it up, but it just sort of shows how they view Erdogan and how he's kind of central to everything. You'll see this one little place where, uh, you know, here he is with the drones. This guy gives speech, he's holding the world in his hands, so to speak. Everything is going to pot, but boy, we can trust Erdogan. Erdogan's going to be the person who's going to bring us together. And it's also interesting the way the maps are set up. It's like Turkey's at the center of the world. I mean, this guy's everywhere. I mean, each week I could just do, oh, I couldn't stand it, but I could just listen to his speeches. This is, I don't even know if he's been in all 900 rooms of the presidential palace in Ankara yet or not. But now, you see how everything is kind of focusing on Turkey? Very interesting. And I think this is significant from a Bible prophecy standpoint, because we know that Turkey is, uh, that region is a major player in some of the events of Bible prophecy that are prophesied. So they're not going anywhere. I don't think Iran's going anywhere right now, but everybody's got problems. The world is the world is in a big mess. And so while the elites of the world want to do the great reset, I think the truth of the matter is that we're witnessing the great unraveling. Now, ultimately we know how this goes out. This ends up Jesus comes back. That's what we're hoping for. That's what we're trusting in. I don't know what's going to happen. All I can know is, everywhere I look this week, all these secular newspapers were going, okay, can we, can we just skip the rest of 2020 already and move on to 2021? Because it's got to be better, right? Maybe not. And I love, I, I'm grateful for the 2020 thing because I can use little circular things. So this week, the... Last week it was spectacles, and the past has been coronavirus, and this week it's the eye of hurricanes uh, that are churning through the world, financial, health, economic, and otherwise. But look, Jesus is coming back. In the meantime, share the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the opportunities that we have. We pray that you will give us opportunities to share the gospel with those around us and to also live lives that glorify Jesus until he comes. Bless us this week in Jesus' name. Amen.